the issue with the Rolex, the issue with the ring, which of course was never was never found, and even her own testimony since then, it, it just looks like the state told her what to say. When this thing goes to court and trial, I have one shot and one opportunity to be not guilty or I go to prison in death row. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the reality of it. We have busted alibis. We have caught people in lies. This is just insane because everybody's pointing the finger at somebody else. You just don't hear every day walking in somebody's house, they're going to take the plastic out and pop somebody. So he could get the execution date pretty much any day? Yeah. There's no impediment. This is Cousins by Blood. Episode 13, Finding Amy. Amy Betcher was the state's star witness. In the very first episode, you heard an actress read Amy Betcher's witness statement. And like I said, there were problems with her statement, and we'd be breaking it down later in greater detail. Well, this is the episode we'll do just that. Even though Amy's statement didn't make a whole lot of sense, it was tough to prove that she was lying. But now that the Rolex watch had been located, that was proof that she had lied in her statements to police. And in November of last year, I went up to Minnesota in an attempt to locate and interview Amy Betcher. It was time to find out what else she was lying about in this case. I wasn't the only one up in Minnesota, though, for this investigation. You may remember hearing the retired Dallas police officer, Susan Eichenberg, in season one. She was one of the first responders at James and Amy Kitchen's house once their bodies were found. She was also at the wellness check, and she joined me up in Minnesota tracking down Amy. But two months prior to that, I called her out of the blue. I'm not sure if you're the right Susan um, or not. You were an officer with Dallas? I was, yes. What's it? What's up? I'm working on a case for uh, Ivan Cantu. It's actually a death row case. Is he, he the uh, one that killed his the nurse and his and her husband and took yes. their car? Yes. Now, what, what do you recall about that? I mean, my recollection of that is there was a call regarding a... Susan Eisenberg walked me through what she recalled, but I was most interested in what she witnessed during the wellness check. What I would uh, love to do, if possible, is um, email you a picture of the, the kitchen. You could say that this is what it looks like, because it was this was found three days, I believe, after you all were there. It was proven that perhaps someone um, had keys to, to the apartment. Do you think that evidence in a trash can with blood on it may have been planted? Is that what you're thinking? It's a uh, it's a possibility. That's what I'm. I mean, I'm just I'm not yeah. thinking that's what you're thinking. That was what I was thinking because, like you heard in season one, I was interested if she remembered seeing the trash can containing the bloody jeans, socks, and latex gloves. And I just found it hard to believe two officers wouldn't notice something like that because. You have no lid on the trash can. There was, no um, there was no lid on the trash can. Don't worry. This won't be a rehash of what you already heard about Officer Eichenberg not seeing the evidence in the trash can. New information for you will be revealed during this conversation. 
information that was too much to get into in season one. If you want to send them, I'll just look at everything now after you send it, but then I'll call you back because I've got to get my email pulled up and everything. When Susan called back, I just sat down to lunch, so there's some restaurant noise in the background. So were you able to open that? Yeah, I'm looking at it. I have a couple things that are weird that I'm wondering. Okay. Yeah, so that is really weird the way the trash can is. I mean, who would leave evidence like that just sitting out like that? And then it looks like, too, when I'm looking at the trash can, there's a, looks like a, a, a Dixie cup. But it almost didn't say it was thrown in there after the evidence was. Again, you can look at this picture on our social media pages. Because it's, if you look at the bag that's put on the put around the trash can, it's off when they it kind of came off the side when the evidence was put in. But the Dixie cup is not consistent with being in the trash when the evidence was put in. Does that make any sense? Yeah. It just kind of looks like it's uh, kind of placed on top. Yeah, after the fact, because it looks like they threw the evidence in. It, it brought the bag off. It pulled the bag off the corner of the trash can. And then after that, somebody drank something, probably a beer, whatever, and threw the Dixie cups in there. So what I'm wondering was, is there did they get DNA from that cup? Because whoever drank that and threw it in knew that evidence was in there. Somehow, the latex glove and Dixie cup were not collected. Just the jeans and socks were taken into evidence. But Susan brought up an interesting point. The cup and the latex glove were put into the trash can in a later transaction than putting in the jeans and socks. So, just so I'm clear on um, how things are done with the department. So, the the pictures that, that I sent of the kitchen, that is saying that nothing was moved when they entered, right? That That is what the kitchen looked like. Uh-huh. That's protocol. Yeah. Um, but that, okay, so the whole Dixie Cup thing, I swear that had to have happened after somebody put the evidence in there. I mean, that, that why wouldn't they even tie that up and go put it in a dumpster? That makes no sense. To me, it's just obvious that cup was thrown in there after they put that evidence because the heaviness of the evidence made that bag come off the, the trash can. If that was Ivan or Amy that put that cup in there, that would that is after the fact, and you would see the evidence. You'd be like, oh, you know. Right. Um, yeah, why is there no lid? I mean, that just looks like somebody's being set up. Within 20 minutes of looking at these pictures... This was beginning to change everything Susan thought she knew about this 20-year-old case. On the, on the picture on the top, there's a brand of jeans. I can't see what the tag is. Mm-hmm. Did, he, did we determine if he typically wore that brand of jeans? <clears throat> so th- those are Arizona jeans. And okay. how they said they matched the jeans and they knew the jeans were his, because they didn't mm-hmm. ever say anything about the DNA was the detective went in his closet and saw another pair of jeans the same size and the same brand, Arizona. Are those the size? No. I mean, were there other jeans in his closet that were the correct size? Apparently, but those weren't taken into evidence. And the jeans that the detective said that he found were never taken into evidence. The second pair. Really? Yeah. That's, That's insane. 
Got that? Aside from the genes not being Ivan's size, there is additional curious elements into the genes angle of this case. When asked on the witness stand how the lead detective knew that these were Ivan's genes because there was no DNA testing done on them to match Ivan, the homicide detective, Detective Anthony Wynn, said that after finding the genes, he went over to Ivan's closet and found the same size and same Arizona brand genes hanging in his closet. So now there are two pairs of jeans that were two sizes too big for Ivan. Or were there? We'll never know because those jeans that the detective said he saw were never taken into evidence and no picture was taken of the jeans, verifying their existence. And there's more. The other interesting thing about the jeans is that uh, I called the manufacturer and those jeans, they were never available in they were basically prototype jeans that were only made by this one uh, manufacturer, then shipped to Dallas. The manufacturer, I believe, was in Arkansas. The jeans were uh, shipped to the distributor in Dallas. Now, one of James's friends, Chris Head, who he, he gave a statement, and but and apparently this Chris Head guy, he had uh, a big falling out with James really? for the murders. Yeah, his girlfriend works at this distributor. Chris Head's girlfriend? Yes. And I asked the guy, is there, could anybody have gotten these genes other than this distributor? He said, no. I mean, the distributor has all these samples. They can't sell them, you know, Perhaps you could have gotten them at a goodwill or something like that, but these jeans were at this distributor. You can't buy these jeans on the street. Now, Ivan said that this Amy... Yes, now we have yet a third Amy, Amy Head. ...would come into James's mortgage place and sell these, like either give these jeans away or because Chris Head spent a little time in the mortgage place too. So he knew her to be working there, either sell these jeans or move these jeans. So they fit Chris Head? Yeah, because he was about six foot tall. Um, or he was he was actually six four, so I mean they mm. Yeah, but they were they would be about his size. Okay. <laughs> was was all that brought up, do you know? Nope. That's the problem. And I was taken off guard by Eichenberg's question because I'd never put as fine a point on it that the jeans in the trash can were actually Chris Head's jeans. If Chris Head was 6'4", he would have likely worn a 34 or 32 inseam. However, Sylvia also referred to him as skinny, so if he was skinny, he would have been more like a 32 waist, making him around a 32-34. The jeans in evidence were a 34-32. And I'm not trying to say these were Chris Head's jeans, but, again, bringing up the point that these jeans could not be bought in stores. These jeans came from only one place, a jean distributor where the girlfriend of Chris Head worked. So, needless to say, there's a lot more to dig into regarding these jeans and Chris and Amy Head. I mean, something doesn't smell right. I mean, of course it's possible that he did do it, that he did it in... Somebody could have done it in the commission of a robbery because they did have dope at that house. 
Mm-hmm. And it, but it would have been one of these people. It's possible that it could have been three of them that were in on it. You know, we don't know, but I mean, if the guy's on death row, this stuff needs to be at least, you know, <laughs> looked at a little harder. I would say so too. And and if you look at, you know, the motive, so the motive was that he was jealous of James. Okay, maybe let's say he's jealous. And he wanted to rob James because he was kind of down on his luck. So he stole a, an engagement ring that's never really been found. He stole a Rolex that was never stolen in the first place. And he stole a Corvette that was that he parked right outside of his apartment and then left town for three days. Yeah, you would never park the Corvette by your house. You Not even somebody with a shoe-size IQ would do that if you did it. If you did it, exactly. And you sure as hell wouldn't leave the evidence. I mean, shit, you would take that evidence and you would throw it in a dumpster on your way to out of town or out of town. Right. In Arkansas. And... Why are you leaving he, it in Texas? And he was talking to Detective Wynn while he was in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, he was basically saying, I'm in Arkansas. I'll tell you when I'm coming back. I'm coming back Tuesday. And in addition to that, not only would he not get rid of that evidence, because Amy said he was tossing stuff in dumpsters and stuff like that, he drives back from Arkansas to Dallas with the murder weapon. So she said. Bullshit. Just saying. Yeah, it doesn't smell right. Oh my goodness, maybe he didn't do it. What do you think? Jeez. Uh, I would hope he could get this appeal. Would I don't know. I mean, how can I help? At that point, I figured the best way Eisenberg could help would be to fill out and sign an affidavit testifying to what she saw, or rather, didn't see in Ivan and Amy's apartment. Like the Rolex, this would be another major piece of exculpatory evidence to add to Ivan's final motion. This is a signed affidavit, written and read by... My name is Susan Eisenberg. I worked for the Dallas Police Department from 1994 to 2002 before becoming a Fed. On November 4, 2000, I responded to a welfare check at 18663 Gibbons in Dallas, Texas, which was Collin County. Upon arrival, two deceased persons were discovered upon entering the residence. Subsequent to securing the crime scene, an individual by the name of Sylvia Cantu expressed concern for the safety of her son, Ivan Cantu. Subsequently, as a response to her concerns, myself and my partner at the time responded to the apartment to check on her son. Upon obtaining a key from the apartment manager, my partner and I entered the residence to conduct a welfare check on her son, Ivan Cantu. Search results were negative for any crime scene activity, except a bullet hole in the wall by the front door. To the best of my recollection, the search lasted approximately 10 minutes. During that search, I entered the small kitchen. I did not observe any clothing or later discovered evidence in the garbage can. I believe this would have been discovered by myself, my partner, or Sylvia Cantu, Ivan's mother, during the search, leading me to believe the evidence in the trash can was not there at the time of the search. 
The search was thorough, and I'm positive this evidence would have been seen. Further, my recollection is that the lid was on the trash can, and it was closed at the time of the search. I hereby state this information above is true, to the best of my knowledge. I also confirm that the above is accurate and complete, and relevant information has not been omitted. Susan Eisenberg. Now that exculpatory evidence was building, and importantly, locating that Rolex proved that Amy committed perjury, the next major part of this investigation was going to be to talk to Amy and see what she had to say about the Rolex and her whole story now. And over the next few weeks, Eisenberg and I kept talking, and it wasn't until Eisenberg told me what she had been up to after her time with the Dallas PD that I figured out how else she could help. She had quite the resume. Here she gives us the rundown. I became a transportation security inspector. This job consisted on interviewing hundreds of parties regarding possible violations of federal regulations. During that time, I was certified in interview techniques by the Reed School. As well as the Reed Technique training, I went to a class with International Security Defense Systems. This was a three-month class, and I was certified in what they call overseas profiling individuals. This gave me a good take on how to talk to people and also how to tell whether they were telling the truth. Having someone with Eisenberg's background to get eyes and ears on Amy with me was going to greatly help this investigation. And Eisenberg was connected with this case. And now she knew a lot of the state's official story wasn't adding up. And like me, she wanted to solve the mystery of why. So I asked her to join me in Minnesota, and it didn't take much convincing. She wanted to be on the right side of this case, even if that meant her former department had gotten things wrong. But before we went up there, I had to go back down south to Livingston, Texas, to meet Ivan back on death row. Once I told him I was going to go interview Amy, he wanted to load me up with info so that I could take apart her story piece by piece. And again, I can't broadcast my interview with him as it was a legal visit but he started by laying out the issues with Amy's statements to police. Remember, there were four official statements that Amy made to the police, and this was way too much to get into in season one. But now this is season two level analysis. So let's take a few minutes to talk about all four of Amy's statements. And it can get confusing just talking about them in a podcast format and that's why I'm making them available for download on our Facebook group page, because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in these statements. So the first statement was given on November 10th, 2000, six days after the bodies were found. And this is the first statement because it's in Amy's handwriting. The second statement was taken on that same day, November 10th, at 2.44 p.m. The first statement didn't have a time on it. The second statement clearly is a different handwriting from Amy's, and it was written by Sergeant Mark Hollingsworth with the Arkansas State Police. The third statement is taken at the same time as the second statement, but it's being taken over the phone by an Officer Brady in Dallas. And now the fourth statement was in another handwriting, and that was taken and written by the lead homicide detective, Detective Anthony Wynn back in Dallas on November 22nd, 2000. 
So the first three statements were taken on November 10th, and then the fourth statement, the final statement, was taken 12 days later on November 22nd. So when I sat across from Ivan in prison, you have to talk on the phone with the thick plastic in between. Ivan said, if you look at all four of the statements, the cops were juicing the statements, meaning every statement got more and more detailed to fit the state's case. At first, it sounds a little crazy until you start looking at it. So for instance, if you look at the first statement, Amy just says, quote, Ivan gave me a ring and I said yes, unquote. Now in the second statement in the handwriting of Sergeant Mark Hollingsworth, it says, quote, Ivan asked me if I would marry him and he put a ring on my finger. The ring had a large stone in the center and some smaller stones and the setting was a platinum band, unquote. Why, when Sergeant Mark is writing Amy's statement, it describes the ring just like Amy Kitchen's missing engagement ring. But when Amy was writing the first statement, she didn't have any of those details. But in my opinion, it kind of gives it away by saying platinum band. She didn't know anything about jewelry. How would Amy Betcher have known it was a platinum band? Platinum looks like silver or white gold. The only way you know that something's platinum is if somebody tells you it's platinum. And she never said Ivan said anything about it being platinum. So yeah, that seems juiced. And this next one is even more glaring. In the first statement, when it gets to the part when Amy is taken back over to the house by Ivan, it reads, quote, Ivan said, come and look at this. And I said, no. He said, come on. I did not see close up, but I kind of seen. I almost threw up, unquote. But by the second statement, the one that Sergeant Mark wrote, it says, quote, After this, we went back to the crime scene. I saw the dog in the kennel, and James and Amy's bodies were in the bedroom. Amy was on the floor, and James was lying in the bed, face up. So by the second statement, she describes exactly how the bodies were found, but she didn't seem to have those details in the first statement. And then you look at the third statement the one that was typed by the officer in Dallas based on the sergeant's statement in Arkansas. In the third statement, when it gets to the part when Amy's taken back over to the house, it reads, quote, Amy stated that she did not want to look at the bodies, but she saw Amy Kitchen lying on the bedroom floor and the complainant lying on the bed looking up towards the ceiling. Amy stated that Kitchen was wearing a gray or white top with dark shorts, unquote. And that does accurately describe what Amy Kitchen was wearing when her body was found. This third statement is supposed to be Dallas PD's telephonic statement based on the statement that the sergeant just took. But now the third statement has a new detail, a huge detail. But it's not in any other statements. It's not in the first, the second, or the fourth statement. So how come in this third statement, which was taken over the phone, now Amy's describing what Amy Kitchen was wearing? It would certainly seem like this officer Brady in Dallas was inserting that fact in based off the crime scene photo. And let's take a look at the fourth statement regarding the jeans. So in the first statement about the time when Amy said Ivan was coming back after committing the murders, she said, quote, Ivan came back with blood on his jeans, unquote. The second statement says, quote, he had blood on his jeans, unquote. Third statement says, quote, when Ivan came back, he was covered in blood, unquote. So now by the third statement, Ivan's covered in blood. Okay, No other statement says that. 
But about the jeans, the third statement says, quote, he took off his bloody pants and socks and put them in the trash can. So when we get to statement four, handwritten by Detective Wynn, it says, quote, Ivan was wearing a stonewash pair of Arizona jeans, unquote. And that just happens to be the jeans they found in the trash can. So did Amy's memory just get a lot better 12 days later? Or were these statements juiced? Why did Amy's story get more and more detailed and fine-tuned the more cops got their hands on Amy's statement? Because on the witness stand, she sure knew they were Arizona jeans and the ring was platinum. But she didn't know that at first, or write that in her first statement. But that's just a few examples. You really have to lay all four of these out. And like I said, that was a lot to get into, especially in the first episode of season one. And in addition to walking me through this statement juicing, as Ivan put it, Ivan wanted to point out what he said were lies Amy told within these statements. So Ivan typed up this document from his prison cell, and it's being read by an actor, and it covers what Ivan said to be claims made by Amy Betcher that we can disprove. So Ivan's going through each page of Amy's second statement and picking things apart. Now, I've created a separate bonus podcast listed as episode 13 bonus, Amy's second statement. You can stop this and listen to that first if you'd like to at this point. But for those who already feel like they have the gist of Amy's statement and timeline by now, we'll plow ahead with Ivan's document. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We'll plow ahead with Ivan's document. Amy Betcher's statement. Date, November 10th, 2000. Location, Izzard County Sheriff's Department. Witness, Sergeant Mark Hollingsworth. Pages, seven pages. Page two. Betcher claims that I was wearing rubber-type gloves. Were these gloves collected as evidence? If so, let's have them DNA tested. As we now know, the gloves were not taken into evidence. And Ivan has never shied away from more DNA testing. As he has said, that would prove his innocence. In an upcoming episode, you'll be hearing the results from the DNA testing performed on the jeans and socks. However, at this time, it appears that DNA will not be able to change the course of Ivan's conviction. But in regards to the rubber or latex gloves, you'll remember that Amy said Ivan was wearing them in all of her statements. But on the witness stand, she said she had never seen them before. So, she obviously lied somewhere. And that doesn't seem like it would be a detail that you would likely forget. So, perhaps another example of a juiced element in her statement to match the contents of the trash can. Page two. Betcher claims that I was hit by something and that it wasn't pretty. People that saw me that evening can prove that I was never hit by anything. 
Mr. Kramer, Amy's stepdad, and the party DJ have both said they didn't notice anything wrong with Ivan's face. Page 3. Betcher claims I put my jeans, socks, the gloves, and emptied the bullets from my gun into a kitchen trash can. Please note that DPD never recovered any bullets from the trash can. Had this been true, officers Younger and Eichenberg would have seen this during the safety check. Eichenberg's affidavit speaks to this. Page 3. Betcher claims she also noticed there was what appeared to be blood in my hair and on the gun. Forensics states that the only trace element of blood was located inside the barrel. No blood was found on the exterior of the gun. Now this is another interesting one. The blood was found inside the barrel of the gun. Pretty much unnoticeable. Now it is possible that there was blood on the outside of the gun and Ivan later cleaned it, but Amy never said anything about Ivan wiping down the gun or anything like that. So for argument's sake, let's assume that Amy was referring to the blood on the gun that the police would later find. As I've commented before, the blood stain on the jeans is so minuscule that no one would even notice the tiny drops on the back ankle. Yet Amy always said Ivan came back in with blood on his jeans. So how did Amy know there was blood on the jeans and blood on the gun if she couldn't have even seen it? Page 3. Betcher claims that I ate some mushrooms. Had this been true, I wouldn't have been able to drive anywhere. People I've spoken with who have taken mushrooms would agree with this statement. It would be hard to believe that Ivan was driving all over Dallas on mushrooms that night and did not get into an accident. Page 4. Betcher claims I told her I was looking for two kilos of cocaine and some money and my cell phone. I also told her to grab my boots. The crime scene photos show that the house is undisturbed. Nothing has been ransacked or rummaged through. Plus, Amy Kitchen's jewelry box is completely intact. By now, you've heard multiple people comment on how immaculate the house was. So if Ivan and Amy were looking for cash or drugs, they would have had to do it in a way so that they left everything tidy and undisturbed. And I think by November 22nd of 2000, Detective Wynn noticed this anomaly too, because in Amy's fourth statement, the one in Anthony Wynn's handwriting, it says, quote, Ivan started going through things at the house. He did not make a mess, unquote. Amy never made that comment in statements one, two, or three and it would seem another example of the police making Amy's story fit everything they found. Page 4. Metcher claims she looked through the cupboards, the fridge, and the desk drawers in an office. If Amy was in the office, why isn't her fingerprints or DNA on anything? You'll remember no trace or fingerprints of Amy or even Ivan were found in that house. Page 5. Metcher claims we left and I was driving the Corvette and she was driving the Honda. We went back to our apartment. Amy never drove the Honda back to the apartment. Please refer to Stephen Mullen's testimony, volume 35 of 53, page 210, line 22. Question, do you recall seeing the Honda there at that time? Answer, line 24, no ma'am, I do not. Again, we can prove that Amy Betcher is lying. So after the 2 a.m. visit, Amy says Ivan drove the Corvette and she drove the Honda back to their apartment. And while they were in the parking lot, Stephen Mullins, the neighbor that saw Ivan changing the CDs in James Corvette, the one that Ivan said hi a neighbor to, Stephen testified he did not see the Honda there. No one at trial seemed to catch that because the whole musical chairs of the cars does get confusing. 
But why that is so important is because it lends credence to Ivan's story that he dropped the Corvette off at 6.30 a.m., and then he drove the Honda back at that point, meaning someone else would have had to park the Corvette in Ivan and Amy's parking lot after they left for Arkansas. Page 5. Metric claims before we got to Club 7, I threw out the bloody clothes in a dumpster located about a block away from the club. Think about this. If we had just left the apartment, why wouldn't everything be placed in a dumpster? If I had enough sense to do this, why would some evidence have been placed in the apartment trash can while other evidence was placed in a dumpster near Club 7? Page 5. Betcher claims on the way to Club 7, I threw out a Rolex watch that belonged to James. You already know that this isn't true. Quick question, though. Does she even know what a Rolex looks like? Page 6. Betcher claims we made one more stop and finally got back to our apartment around 12 p.m. Not true. An affidavit from the apartment complex staff will confirm that I was in the leasing office between 9.30 a.m. and 10 a.m. paying the rent with a money order. Please note that we returned to the apartment shortly after returning the Corvette to Gibbons. Got to the apartment between 6.30 a.m. and 6.40 a.m. That was the last element of Amy's statement that Ivan listed. As you can hear, Ivan is pretty meticulous, but somewhat unrealistic when it comes to thinking that people from 20 years ago would remember the days around November 4th just as clear as he says he does. The world stopped a few days after November 4th for Ivan, so it almost seems like yesterday for him. But whoever he did give the rent checks to 20 years ago would not remember what time he did. But I called to make sure... Ivan and Amy's apartment complex, Pear Ridge Apartments, their records only went back to 2004. So there was no record if Ivan actually paid the rent for November of 2000. And they also told me that they didn't have surveillance cameras in 2000. So that does explain why that surveillance video was not taken into evidence. There was no surveillance video. So while Ivan's confident in all the ways to prove Amy's alleged lies and some speak for themselves, like the Rolex, other lies are not going to be quite so easy to pick apart. Within this document, Ivan lists 11 times which he says Amy lied. And in closing to the document, he typed, How many elements are needed to discredit a witness, statement, or testimony? Which is a good question, so I pose that to Ivan's lawyer, Gina Bunn, how many times does it take for a state star witness to be proven false? Before it's meaningless or what needs to happen to have that completely thrown out at a certain point? Or does that happen? It does happen, but it is, you know, it's, a, it's an uphill battle. It is, because once you have a jury having basically found a particular witness credible, and that's, you know, essentially what at least can be inferred from the jury's verdict that, you know, they, the, a jury saw Amy Betcher testify on the stand and apparently believed her. That is a difficult thing for a reviewing court to undo. They are very, um, they don't like second guessing juries. They just don't. Um, and so, yes, it's going to take, it, it takes a lot to impeach a witness after the fact, a witness who has been, um, whose credibility has already been judged by a jury who, who, you know, observed her demeanor on the stand and listened to what she had to say and believed her. 
So it's it's difficult. And I, you know, you know, what does it take? You know, it's it takes more than you know finding her isolated instances of of you know not of, of untruth. But I, you know, I think we're awfully close to that. I mean, I mean, it had to because what it looks like is that basically, I mean, to me. And this is the larger issue behind Amy's lies. The issue with the Rolex, the issue with the ring, which of course was never was never found, um, and even her own testimony since then, it, it just looks like the state told her what to say. It fed her information, information that, that as it turns out, was incorrect, and um, told her what to say. I mean, obviously, that Rolex watch, she never saw that Rolex watch. Obviously. She never saw Ivan throw it out the car from the tollway. But that's what she testified to. I mean, that's that was de- that's dis- demonstrably false. And and it kind of begs the question: if the police fed her information about the Rolex, then could they have also fed her information about other? details of the crime. If it is established that the police fed her information, details that she physically couldn't have had, what happens if that is established? You know, it's critical on on multiple levels. On one level, it uh, certainly impeaches Amy's entire testimony calls into question her testimony overall. And it also casts doubt on the the, uh, state's investigation and the integrity of the investigation. I do think that the discovery of the Rolex is critical and in my view goes a long way toward um, getting review of of Ivan's entire case and a new trial. I, I mean, I don't want to downplay the the significance of the Rolex because in my view it is it's big and this is what the discovery of the Rolex means legally for Ivan's fight for a new trial basically what we've got is new evidence that impeaches Amy's trial testimony and there are various ways we can go about framing this question for the reviewing court to have them, you know, consider the new evidence and decide whether Ivan should get a new trial. For instance, as a claim of actual innocence, the freestanding claim of actual innocence, uh, we have to prove by clear and convincing evidence that in light of this newly discovered evidence, no rational juror could have found Ivan guilty uh, in light of the case as a whole. Or as a Brady claim, uh, we would have to prove that the state withheld evidence 
about the existence of the Rolex and that that evidence was material to Ivan's case. Uh, that is, that there is a reasonable probability that had the evidence been disclosed, the outcome of his trial uh, would have been different. Or even to raise it as an ineffective assistance of counsel claim that trial counsel performed efficiently by failing to discover uh, this evidence and uh, this this error on their part uh, resulted in prejudice. That is, that if it weren't for the error, um, there's a reasonable likelihood that uh, the outcome of Ivan's trial would have been different. So, you know, that's the framework that we're working in. Of course, our argument being that um, this new evidence demands a new trial. I'd really like to hear what Amy has to say in light of the discovery of the Rolex. So did I. And last November, I flew up to Minnesota and met Susan Eisenberg. Day one in Minnesota, the sky was gray and the ground was covered with snow. Eisenberg and I had four potential addresses for Amy. So we hit the streets in the rental car. I had Amy's phone number, but she would never pick up and I didn't want to leave her a message. So we figured the best plan of attack would be the surprise approach. Roll up to Amy's house, talk our way in the door, and get into the questioning. This was Eisenberg and I in the car that cold November morning. So yeah, so okay, she wasn't charged with anything, right? Right. So how is she not being charged for accessory after the fact? In other words, if you help somebody hide a body, you're an accessory to that murder. So I'm assuming it went like this, you know, we can charge you, but we won't if you testify against either. Right. Which could have influenced her to say things which may have not been um, accurate. Right but, on to 50th I don't Street North. She's not charged. She's saying she threw this shit in the trash. That she threw evidence, evidence in so the trash. So she knew about the crime. And didn't say anything for... Turn left onto 50th Street North. Why are we on Georgia Boulevard? Four days. Oh, 50th Street North. We were taking a left here. The destination is on your right. Grafton Avenue North. Arrived. Uh, this... Which one now? Where's this the... yellow one. Okay, so the vehicle is what? We got two vehicles back there, or three? Three. Now, let's see where we're going to get to figure out. Yeah, this is going to be a hard one. Well, they can't see us from back here, right? I mean, if we can see them, they can see us, but no. I don't think so. Is that the house? The back of the house? This was the address that I know Amy lived at in 2012. It was a small but cute yellow house on the corner of a quaint little street in Oakdale, Minnesota. I'd looked at it probably a dozen times on Google Earth, thinking about this moment. Parked outside the house, Amy Betcher, and the truth about what really happened, only a few feet away. But before we just walked up and knocked on the door, we needed to know as much as possible about the situation in the house. I knew Amy had two kids. If her kids were at home, that would be a good excuse for her to not talk to us and tell us to come back later, and she never answers the door again. 
Or maybe she's living with a guy or multiple people and they would shut us down. We needed to catch her at the best possible opportunity or likely she could just refuse to talk to us. And this trip would have been for nothing and we would lose any valuable information we could get from her. We sat on the house for 30 minutes. I ran the license plates that we could see from across the street. They came back to a man last named Jansen. I was pretty sure Amy wasn't married. There were three sobs in the driveway, which didn't feel right for Amy. When a guy walked outside carrying a bag of soccer balls to one of the sobs, Eisenberg just hopped out to ask if Amy still lived there. We didn't figure so. Long house. What's her name, Jansen? Yeah. Yeah, she moved. So... Yeah, no, that's... He says it's been several years. He does not know. Amy Betcher. Okay. No, that's that name. So, let's go to her next place. On the way to the second address, Eichenberg called Amy's cell phone just to see if she would pick up. It's definitely her, right? Myra and Gunner, okay. they messed her call back. Well, so they all live with their, with, I think they all live with parents. Because the kids live with her, obviously. If she's saying that, they're all using that. Mm-hmm. In half a mile, the destination is on your left, Cherie Trail. This was another address that was on Amy's background report, but it also came back to her mom's name. So if this address was correct, we didn't know if she'd be living with her mom or what. I can always try and knock and talk, but my concern is that there's no cars there, right? Uh-huh. My concern is that just, like, she's got the car in mom's home. Or, right. We have no idea. And she's shutting us down, and that's it, and then she's calling Amy. And that's it. There were no cars in the driveway. No lights were on, and no one appeared to be home. There was a package by the front door, so Eichenberg got out to check the name on the shipping label. Nope. Who is it? Hennen. H-E-N-N-E-N. Oh. Damn it. Damn. Wow. There's only one other place that's... Two and a half hours away. No, there's another one. We rolled up to the third address. It was about 45 minutes away. This one came up under her mom's name, too, but Amy's name was also on the address a few years ago. It was a small complex of townhouses in Invergrove Heights. Pretty sure her mom lives here. We don't know she lives here. God, it's almost like she's hiding something. <laughs> mm-hmm. It'd be weird. I mean, yeah, it's been a minute, but... I don't know how you can check that trash without being... Legally, you can, because it's discarded and it's considered... Well, but without being... I mean, I guess the neighbors would... No windows. Huh? No windows. I mean, these people up there, but... Trash cans were out all over the street, but they hadn't been picked up yet. Or you dig through it That's what you do looking for evidence, but I was just going to look and see if there was a name, like an envelope or something. Okay. Talk about that. Yeah, if it's trash, there's no expectation of privacy. That's the law. So that's how police officers can look through people's trash without a warrant. 
Eichenberg didn't have a problem hopping out in the snow and digging through what we hoped was a Betcher trash can. Again, we wanted to know as much as possible about who was living in the house before we knocked on the door. There's no papers in there at all. It's just like soda bottles and stuff. There's four. So it's a fourplex. So there's two down, two up. Okay. In there, I don't know. I can't do them. There's nothing in the trash. I can even pull out to look at. Is there names by that little white thing by the door? I walked up to the entrance, and Terry Betcher, Amy's mom's name, was by the door. Yep, that's a box. All right. Written on tape. So. Is there a buzz? Yeah, it looks like a buzz. You can buzz right there. Here's the other part of this situation and why we're being so cautious about Amy's mom. Another PI interviewed Amy in 2012. No real helpful information came from that. Mostly a lot of I don't remembers. But towards the end of that interview, you can hear Amy on the phone with a female, and you can overhear the female on the phone saying, don't answer their questions, they're not your friends. We assume that was Amy's mom. That interview took place at the first residence we tried. That's why I was hoping she'd be there. So we had a feeling that if Amy wasn't in this townhouse and just her mom was, then her mom would tell Amy that two people were looking for her, and then we'd never find her. I just... So we know... I'm scared that that it's just her mom or something. Yeah, I think so. Because I do not want to burn this. No. And if that's just her mom... So what we know with that trash can sitting out there... It didn't look like kids. It didn't look like... It looked like one person's trash. There wasn't enough in there. Amy has a son that's around 16 and a daughter that's 13. Really? Yeah, it was like Seagram. It was like... Nothing that no, said there high was, school kids? It was kids? not even full nothing. Nothing. It was like one person trash. There wasn't even enough in there. There was not even a paper in there. Damn. Did you look her up and see if she's in Arkansas? She's not in Arkansas. Because, uh... How do you know? Well, that was Amy's stepdad right there. Well, Yeah. I talked to him like a couple months ago, and he was like, I haven't seen her in oh, 10 years. Okay. So you don't think... I don't think we should talk and talk that door once we see her. Uh-uh. Well, I mean, it would be that quick that she would call Amy and say, do not talk to these people. Right. And we don't look like salesmen either. Like, do you want to buy a Eureka vacuum? There was one other address, but that was two hours away and it was an old cabin that was in her dad's name. He had passed away years ago, and that felt like a long shot anyway. The report said she hadn't lived there for years. does not want to be found. I'll tell you that. She's not on social media. No. She is not. I mean, she does not. You have to try this hard not to be found. It is not this hard to find somebody normally. No. If it's that easy to disappear, a lot of people would do it. There was one other avenue to try. Now that we had boots on the ground in Minnesota, we could go to the courthouse, and if she had had any run-ins with the law lately, she would have had to give them an address. We made it to the courthouse right before closing and hopped back in the car with modest success. We found yet another address. That's a good address. I just, we don't know if she's still there. It was a good I mean, address back then, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, that'd be cool if she's still there, but that's gonna be a, a good address. 
It was. <laughs> because? And if not, she's just off the grid, and I don't know why. I mean, she doesn't seem to be in jail. Did you? Did we check if she was in jail and prison, or just prison, or both? We checked both. Okay. I think if if she's not here, she's not in jail or prison. It's probably a halfway house. That's what I was gonna say. I mean, she could be in rehab. She could be, and we're not gonna find her in rehab because they're not gonna ever disclose who's in rehab. The sun had gone down on us by the time we got to the fourth and pretty much final address. It was in Stillwater, Minnesota. This looked to be an affordable housing complex that was at the end of a dead-end road. It had about 15 to 20 units and about 10 cars in the gravel parking lot. We parked by the rest of the cars. We turned off our lights and leaned back in our seats, and since it was dark, people couldn't really see in the car unless headlights came by. Her address came back to Unit A, which would seem to be the unit on the far right. It was the only door that had a few Christmas lights hung up. Okay, look, 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 dog. Dog. Person. Amy. The female walking a dog came around the end of the parking lot towards the complex. That's her, look. It's either her or her daughter. You think so? It was a girl with a ponytail, blonde. It was blonde? Skinny blonde. Yeah, ponytail. she was definitely skinny blonde. She looked, she moved younger than somebody Amy's age, but that's either her daughter or that very well might be her. Hmm. That could have been her. Yeah. She walked into Unit A with her small dog, but the blinds were open and we could see inside into her living room. She started hanging up Christmas decorations by herself. She would be about that size, though. Nobody's helping her. I mean, like, hang stuff, so she might be in there alone. That's true. Well, she's a blonde, she's skinny. Now she's looking at us. No, she's not. She did, she held her. She's blonde, she's skinny. My only question is, like, is she too young? There's only one way to find out. She had a thick accent. Shut up. The dog, a Shih Tzu, ran out by her feet. Hi. How are you? How's it going? Hi. I'm Matt. This is Susie. Nice to meet you. Hi, Sonny. Sorry. Oh, she was evicted out here. Oh, was she? Yeah, she was. um, Yeah, so one, two, three. It was four doors down. And is the one she lived in. Oh, okay. So. The second one to the end on this strip right here, uh, it was that one. Uh-huh. So it was the second to the last one. But anyway, she was evicted out of here. Oh, no, it's okay. Yeah, careful. And her little lion thing is like almost like camouflaged. Yes. Why is she get evicted? 
drunk. Like, oh, seriously? It was bad. A cu- good couple months ago. It was, and it was for, it was a, like crazy ongoing thing. She had people staying here and. I don't know. She had one guy, I guess, making what well, we found. The way we found out is because we heard a loud like that. And she had some guy staying here, or just a friend, I guess, but he was making homemade, homemade bombs. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. Homemade, homemade bombs? Handmade, homemade, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like pipe bombs or something. Yeah, uh-huh. and he walked one over there and it blew up in his, <gasps> and it blew his hand. They had, he had, oh, I lost my shit. On her or just the? All of them. So how many people live there? I don't know. She had people there all the time. And then they, her place got raided or something. It was due to that. I mean, they brought out like a whole grip of chemicals and I- What's her, what's her phone number? Do you still have it? I don't, I've never had she I have it. But, oh yeah, she will, yeah. So this lady, we'll call Mary, told us that another neighbor, we'll call TJ, has a daughter who was best friends with Amy's daughter, Myra. And Mary said that TJ would know how to get a hold of Amy. She was, there she is, okay. TJ walked in. So I was just filling them in, these I guys, just, you know, about Amy. I was just giving them like hi. info, but I'm just trying to figure out, it's about an old case, it's you know? Case. I didn't yeah, she's not in any trouble or anything. Yeah. She's still blonde. Yeah. Oh, very skinny. <laughs> not Are so she? skinny. She's got like, no, like she's got on. She's got, really? she always had a, it's like the, the beard gut. Like, like a woman's beard she's gut. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, she's, she's always dressed like a hooker. But she, 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 she wasn't like trying to, uh, you know? Um, well, one time I ended up with her phone. Oh yeah. And, and she figured out how the hell to unlock it. I'm like, dude, what yeah. did you find in there? A lot. She always plays the victim. But her mom, when she got evicted from here, her mom refused to have her. So she's not she, in jail. No, she wasn't. Um, she was in jail for like two weeks. Um, See, yeah, I was like, I didn't it's know. It's been about a month now because she showed up at my house after she got out. Oh, okay, well, yeah, where's, where's her address now? Uh, I don't know the address because I dropped... One of our other neighbors that's friends with her. Where is it? What is it? By Lens. Lens was Lens Family Foods, 101 Owen Street North, Stillwater, Minnesota. TJ dropped off Amy at Lens the other day and saw her walk down the street in the direction of presumably her new place. It took us almost a whole day to track her down, but now we had Amy in about a quarter of a mile radius, and it was only a matter of time until we found her. But first, you have to hear what Amy's been up to lately. And TJ was a direct witness to Amy dealing with the police. Her head's always in the clouds. But it's like, if you're questioning her, like, if you say, you question her, was like, was he covered in blood? Like, yeah, he was covered in blood. Like, she just kind of repeats the statement. You know, because when she talks to the cops after Tom. Tom's the guy that blew up the bomb in his hand anything they asked her, like, she repeated the same thing. Next time on Cousins by Blood.
find out more about the case, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Cousins by Blood Podcast. If you have any information about this case, you can message through social media or email us at Cousins by Blood Podcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Susan Eisenberg and Gina Bunn. Mixing and mastering by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. <laughs>